Live from Utrecht, this is Bitcoin. Explained. Hey, Jos. What's up? I'm good. Uh, how do you like the weather? Yeah, well, it was too hot all summer, and then it was nice for about a week, and now we're back to too cold, so... This is going to be a great winter. That's the Dutch winter for you. At least for now, it's still a little bit light. For example, while we're recording, it's still light, and it's past six. That's that's the really dreadful moment for me when the clock changes. When we go back to the, when we revert. Well, we go to, yeah, we go to standard time. Although some people want to change it and make the summertime the default, which I think is terrible. But I would definitely prefer that, just because I I don't get up that early anyways. So I, I like to optimize my my sun hours. I mean, ultimately, you can just get up whenever you want to get up, right? Mm, Unless I mean, you have you, to be you in a can, physical place. But you're kind of reliant on the on the rest of society around you, right? Like stores close at a certain time and people get out of work at a certain time, like might be your friends or you want to record a podcast at a certain time because you want to eat at a certain time. So I don't have that full flexibility that you suggest because okay. of all these people around me okay sure so i'm gonna shield the conference one more time conference is coming up okay you can get a 10 percent discount if you know how to spell shortsnado that's your discount code shortsnado on i think it's b.tz slash amsterdam i think that's the that's the website for the conference all right sure we're gonna discuss the new bitcoin core release that's coming up it's not here yet it's bitcoin core 24.0 24.0. That's the upcoming one. Real quick for maybe there are some new listeners. What does it mean that there's a new Bitcoin Core release coming out? Yeah, so because Bitcoin Core does not have a roadmap or anything like that, there is just a new release every six months or so. And things that are ready go into that new release and things that are not ready may go into another release. So there's nothing very special about these releases. Right, and it's so it's just, time it's for just number a, twenty-four. It's just an update that happens twice a year, generally, and whatever is done is done. Yes, and then there are some minor updates throughout the rest of the year. That might be twenty-four point one, twenty-four point two, etc. And those typically are just bug fixes, but no major changes. Right, and right now there's a release candidate. At the time of recording this podcast, there's I think the first release candidate for Bitcoin Core twenty-four. Mm. What does a release candidate mean? Kind of what the word suggests. It's a candidate for the release. So if all goes well, then the actual release will be made identical to the last candidate. But the idea is that people who know what they're doing should be downloading that release candidate and or compiling it themselves and play around with it and make sure that nothing crashes, that things they use, especially if you run some sort of automated service, like you might be running an exchange or, or maybe you're running BTC Pay or something like that. You want to make sure nothing breaks in your setup. Because Bitcoin Core tries to not break things that use it, but it happens occasionally. Right. So if there's no report of anything breaking, then this release candidate will basically be the release, right? Yeah, but I think there's already some some things that have been improved, so there will definitely be a second release candidate. Okay, yeah. And I think in previous Bitcoin Core releases, there were on average like four or so. Yeah, I'd say that's typical. Yeah. So and so usually there's two weeks between them. So you release it and then... Maybe after a week or so, people start fixing things, and then after two weeks, there's a new one. Right. So, so realistically, well, technically, the new Bitcoin Core 24 release could be released any day now, but practically speaking, it will probably be at least a couple more weeks, right? 
Yeah, I'd say so. I think there is there is a release attempted release schedule on the Bitcoin Core repository, which I think is for mid October. Right. Okay. So there's a bunch of new features as well as bug fixes and imp uh, improvements. Uh, sorry, performance improvements in this new release. We're gonna discuss a couple of these. This is kind of just our selection. If there were, yeah. if, if this podcast was made by two other people, by Orson Sharon, <laughs> there might be, a, they might make a different selection. But we, Shorts and Aaron, we made this selection. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, the, you can look at all the commits, so all the the atomic changes that go into a release, and there could be a, a, a thousand of them, but most of them are very boring, or at least they are very boring unless you are really into details of how compilers work or into cleaning up code for the sake of cleaning it up. So there's a lot of, of changes that are just not very interesting to discuss, although they are important and they should be, they are being, you know, they, they always get reviewed because any of those changes could of course be a really scary thing. Yeah. I, I'm just saying we, we made a selection of some of the changes that we think are probably most interesting to you, our dear listener. That's right. Okay, so let's start. Sure, I think the, this one is the first one mentioned in the release notes as well. It's about the peer-to-peer -peer and network changes. Is that a, is that a typo? It should just say peer-to-peer -peer changes? Peer-to-peer -peer network changes? Whatever. Peer-to-peer -peer networking, yeah. Let's move on. So it says that there's a change and you're going to explain to me what this is. That's the format of the podcast in case you forgot. It says download headers from peers. So the downloading from downloading of headers from peers has been reworked. That's right. Somehow. Okay. Yeah, this one might be worth a separate episode, but I think we can explain the gist of it now. So when your node first starts up, it is going to find peers, which we discussed in an earlier episode, and then it's going to download headers from peers, which we've also discussed in earlier episodes. So it tries to get all the headers first. And then hang on. So every block has a header, which is essentially yeah. the hash of the block itself, right? Plus a little bit of extra info that, for example, contains the timestamp and the amount of proof of work. Well, the amount of proof of work follows in the hash, but yeah, it's it's basically a hash plus some extra info. Yes. And the, so it's not the whole block. Okay. So first you start downloading not the whole block or not all of the blocks, but you start downloading the headers, right? Yes, and the idea is that you first want to make sure that the chain that you're following has enough proof of work that it's even worth downloading the blocks for. Now, that's been improved you know, many years uh, ago. It used to be that it, I think it would just download headers and then some blocks and then some headers and then some blocks. And that has been changed many years ago to first download all the headers. And only then when you know for sure that you have enough proof of work, because you can check that based on the headers, then you start downloading the blocks. This wastes, This prevents you from wasting time chasing and basically chasing dead ends. Okay, that was already the case. Yeah. So I even in Bitcoin Core 23, you would already start with downloading only the headers That's and only right. later the blocks. Okay, yeah. so what has changed? So what has changed now is that we're going to download the headers twice. And that might take some explanation on why you want to do that. Yes. So there is the potential problem that you're worried about with headers is that you could receive quite a lot of them. Because, you know, right now there have been about 700,000 blocks since the genesis, but a miner could manipulate the timestamps and they could create a fake blockchain with blocks that are every second. And that would be billions and billions of, 
of blocks. Well, I guess anyone can can only a mi only a miner can do. Well, that? anyone who can mine. I mean, you, yeah. you you do need basically the ASIC hardware to do that. Well, you'd have to, to do the math on what kind of hardware you would need to do it. I mean, in principle, you don't well, you need, need an ASIC to mine blocks, right? You because need the proof of work, is what I'm saying. Yeah. You need the actual proof of work, yeah. But I mean, you know, the, the proof of work in the beginning was quite low, so you can do that with a CPU, but maybe if you want to, you know, do some damage, maybe you need more power. Anyway, uh, so the, the worry is that you get a billion headers from a chain, and it's not the real chain, but it's a lots of low work nonsense. And the problem with that is that not just do you have to download it, because that's kind of hard to avoid, but you also tend to store it on your disk because maybe you receive half a billion headers, but and those, those don't go anywhere, but you don't know. Maybe there's another half a billion headers on top of that that do take you to the real tip. So you can't really throw those headers away that easily. And so the attack would be that lots of, you know, lots of headers are sent to you. And that attack has been known for a long time. And the solution to that so far has been checkpoints. And okay, hang on. Let's summarize this. So fir first, the problem was solved. The, the problem of The first problem was just getting lots of spam blocks. Yes. So that problem was solved by only checking the headers. But yes. now basically a new problem is introduced. Namely, someone could just send you a boatload of fake headers essentially yeah and then while downloading all these headers you also have to store it this is resource intensive yeah so it's basically the general category of problem is called a resource exhaustion attack so right. trying to exhaust one of your resources right now, and then you yeah. and then you mentioned this was solved with checkpoints this che has been okay, yeah. very early on that's kind of what the checkpoints are for fortunately well, checkpoints have not been added since 2013 because they are, you know, not very, not very nice way to do it. Just to be very clear, what is a checkpoint? So what a checkpoint does is it says this specific block with this hash must exist in the chain. Right. So it's not optional. Right. And so the, that the, has always been done retroactively, like a long time after. So, so a way to abuse checkpoints is to say, well, somebody stole my coins. I'm going to now introduce a checkpoint that happens before somebody stole my coins for a new block that I've created that does not steal my coins and then you know we start history again that's the worst well, case that should be after someone what should it yeah so so somebody steals my coins yeah let's say that yeah. happens today then i call up a miner and say could you make a couple of new blocks that don't steal my coins here's the double spend version that i want to include in that block they mine it for me and then i release a new version of bitcoin core that says here's a checkpoint you must ignore like the real big chain that has built on top of the hack right. and actually go for this other chain. Yeah, so with the checkpoint, you can sort of overrule the longest chain rule. That's right. And, and that has been done in, in many altcoins. So the concern is that we don't want that to happen in Bitcoin. So one way to prevent that has, I think, has been from the beginning to introduce the checkpoints only much after they've already happened. Mm -hmm. So you already know they're part of the longest chain. Everybody can verify that. And the checkpoint is quite buried quite deeply. But it's still not a very pretty solution. And so people stop doing it. So it'd be nice, but so it'd be very nice. Did you mention when the last checkpoint was? I think it was 2013. Right. Quite a long time it's, ago. It's a while, yeah. Yeah. And so it'd be nice to get rid of those things entirely because, you know, they are confusing. And, you know, we probably don't want to add new ones. So in order to get rid of them, you still need to fix this, this, this uh, resource exhaustion attack that we just talked about. So then how do you do that? Well, the trick is to download headers twice, as I said. So right. what you do is you download them once. And when you're downloading them once, you don't save them. You just look at them, check if they're correct, and you throw them away. So this means it does not use any of your disk space. 
And then if, if you see enough work at the end, if, if, you know, if you checked all the headers and you see the proof of work is enough, it's the longest chain, then you ask the peer, hey, can you send them again, please? And you download them again. Right. Yeah. I think I mentioned yesterday when we went over this in our preparation, th this is kind of how my attention span usually works. Exactly. You first, you first <laughs> let, let me ramble on a bit and then you think, oh, this might actually be interesting. And then you say, what did you say again? Please repeat. Can you repeat that for me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is how Bitcoin notes now actually work. That's right. They first listen, they don't store anything, but then if it sounds actually interesting, if they see the proof of work, they just ask again and they exactly. get all the blocks again. You're like, oh, that's cool. That's but they get all the headers again, I guess, or do yes. they now also get the blocks? Well, then, you know, once those headers have been downloaded the second time, things return, continue as always. You just start right. fetching blocks for the headers. Now, there's, of course, a little gotcha there because, well, who says that the second time you're getting the same headers as the first time? Right. You don't know that because oh, right. you didn't yeah. store them. Mm -hmm. So what you do instead is you store one little one checksum, which is a one-bit checksum, every 50,000 blocks or so. So every 50,000 headers, you store a zero or a one, depending on the contents of those headers. And you do that every 50,000 headers. That is very little information, but it turns out that it's actually quite difficult for anybody to fake that information. So for anybody to create fake headers that do match your your checksum, even though it's a very small checksum. Right, yeah, a checksum is essentially you add up all kinds of numbers and you get a very short number, which doesn't in itself prove anything, but I guess if yeah. you do it a, a bunch of times, then... If you add up the same numbers, you're gonna get the same checksum. Right, exactly. So if you have 50,000 headers, you add all those up together, then you get either a one or a zero. If you change any of the headers, well, you'll either get a one or a zero, but it might be a different one. Mm -hmm. Now that, of course, is a 50-50 chance. Yeah. So that make that's pretty easy for a hacker to go after, but there are many blocks. So it turns out that if for a long enough, I might be wrong on the exact number, it might be less than 50,000, but if you have enough of those one-bit checks, basically, then it becomes quite hard for, a, for an attacker to create a fake chain that has enough proof of work, but that is different from the last one they sent you. Yep. Okay, so, that makes sense. Yep. So the the... the there's still a small part of the problem left, which is you do still need to download it the first time. Yes. But it, it solves another part of the problem, essentially. Yeah, so, so the downside is you're, you're downloading headers twice, so that might be another 100 megabytes or so in the ideal case. However, compared to the size of the blockchain, that's not too bad. And compared to the you know worst case attack, it's definitely not bad. So yeah. and of course, even even if an attacker would want to try this for some reason, it's also costing the attacker resources because he has to upload all the yeah, fake they, data, it, the same data you have to download. It's, it doesn't really do much. This attack, right? It doesn't really. It, it can't allow you to steal coins or anything like well, that. Well, with this defense, no, because all they can do is waste your bandwidth, and there are many ways to waste your bandwidth, right? An attacker can just send you a gigabyte block, and with or just complete gibberish in general. Yeah. So that's that's not a new problem. Okay, so this was included in Bitcoin Core 24 and will be... Yeah. And the checkpoints are still there, but mm -hmm. the idea would be to remove them eventually. Okay, so that would be removed in a, in a future release. Yeah, and of presumably. course, you know, there has to be some additional discussion to make sure that that was really the last thing we needed, that the checkpoints are not also protecting against something else that we forgot about. Right. Okay, well, that's the peer-to-peer part of bitcoin 24 then the next point is mempool uses 
full RBF now or can use full RBF? Can use full RBF. Right. So it used to be that if you wanted, I think we've done an episode about uh, replaced by fee RBF. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think the listeners should listen to that. Because well, it's you can summarize it in two, two sentences. Probably, yeah. So, right? so basically the Bitcoin protocol itself, when you have one transaction and then you want to double spend it, there's nothing stopping you from doing that before it's in a block. Right now, from an incentive point of view, miners are most likely to include the, the block with the highest fee, but they don't necessarily have to. And so there was a proposal by Peter Todd many, many years ago to say, well, uh, normally the nodes, well, let's go one step back. So what miners do is ultimately up to miners. You have no control over that. And Bitcoin Core can change things in the software, but miners will do whatever they do because what the mempool does is not consensus. Yeah. However, but the nodes will relay transactions. And so you can change the nodes to say, well, I'm I'm going to broadcast some transactions. I'm not going to rebroadcast other transactions. And so this new rule, opt-in replaced by fee, opt-in RBF, basically said that normally we only broadcast the first version of the transaction we see, regardless of the second one. doesn't matter if the second one pays more fees. But if you put a flag in the transaction that says, I want to opt-in to replace by fee, then nodes will, refer, uh, will relay transactions that pay a higher fee only and a bunch of other constraints and so this gives the recipient some assurance not much but some assurance that if this flag is present this transaction could be replaced anytime you really have to wait for it to confirm if it doesn't have this flag it might still disappear it's just a little bit less likely yeah i want to clarify one thing because you mentioned double spending in this context and you are of course right that this can be used to double spend until it's included in a block, as you said. Yep. But the main purpose f or the main idea for, you know, using a flag, for example, is to increase the fee on your own transaction, right? That's definitely, so I don't know how long that idea has been around because the idea of being stuck in a mempool, that concept didn't even exist until 2015 or 2016. That was never a problem. But, yeah, but it was mm -hmm. the, the flag was introduced around that time and definitely in the context of that, that was the debate. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure I, about that. Yeah. So to yeah, so to summarize that, at least the idea for the flag was you send a transaction, but the mempool was full, and therefore your transaction is not confirming. Now with the RBF flag, you can basically resend the same transaction with a higher fee, and therefore, because the flag is included, nodes will actually forward it to miners, and it can be included in a block. Yeah. Now, you don't actually need to include the flag anymore. Uh, if this setting is turned on? It yeah, I think that if you turn the setting on, then the flag does no longer have to be in there. It'll re uh, it'll relay it anyway. So I, then in I, my I'm case guessing there are other rules, though, because I assume the fee has to go up, but I'm not sure about that. So in my case, if so far I was running a Bitcoin Core node, let's say, uh, what was the previous one? 23, of course. So far I was running Bitcoin Core 23, and then my node would not forward a transaction even if it had a higher fee and it conflicted with the previous transaction. It would not do that. But now with Bitcoin 24, I can switch the setting and now it will actually forward that transaction. Yeah, I right? think that's it. And it basically means that if you're relying on this opt-in RBF system to prevent double spends, basically to prevent double spends, you should now rely on that less so because there's going to be more nodes that will relay this thing regardless. Yeah, well, I mean, it would almost... 
well, I don't know about almost certainly, but there's definitely a much bigger chance that a conflicting transaction will make it to a miner now, right? Because I think there only needs to be a relatively small amount of nodes on the network that actually do it yeah. for a transaction to just find its way over the entire network. But there was already ways node... to do it, right? There, there was a patch by Peter Todd, which was pretty small, and you could use that to, to modify your nodes. So there's already some nodes doing it. Now there's more, presumably. Right. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. How many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what. Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero-management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. So does this may does this mean that some merchants are going to be unhappy? Well, they might be there, there for are, that reason. There are still some merchants that rely on ZeroConf. Right? Yeah, there are definitely merchants that do that. But the flip side is that there's also merchants that use Lightning, and Lightning is generally bothered a lot by this by the existing RBF rules because they make it much more complicated to deal with penalty transactions. So they may get on the long run they may get a better Lightning experience out of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, my personal opinion is that this should just be the general rule. Well, Transactions should always be broadcast and forwarded, if, especially if they have a higher fee. I mean, maybe. I mean, we've already had this discussion during that episode, I guess. But I would also say that if you just turn on the RBF flag by default, it shouldn't bother you either. But I think the bigger problem is that our, the this RBF flag has very specific rules. It's not just that you set the flag. You also have to do a few other things. And those other things cause complications so that could be a reason to say you know what let's forget about this opt-in rbf completely and relay everything that is reasonable but there are trade-offs one is just bandwidth because if if i can if if my node relays everything that you send to it i could send you one transaction and then increase it by one satoshi per byte or increase it by don't even increase the fee but just change the destinations a bit and i could send you millions and millions of variations of the same transaction basically wasting everybody's bandwidth so it's not entirely without trade-offs. Fair. All right. Let's move on to the third point. So we mentioned change on the peer-to-peer -peer network, the block header thing, and we just mentioned RBF. And then the third point is this is related to descriptor wallets and migration to descriptor wallets. Yeah. I'm not sure how much we covered descriptor wallets so far, but the gist of it is that the Bitcoin Core wallet uh, is quite old. It used to be just a bag of keys. And then, you know, given a private key, the wallet would have to pay attention to certain scripts. I think in one of the first episodes, we explained what scripts are. But the simplest scripts is just that anybody with the public key can spend this coin. Mm -hmm. The second simplest script is the anybody with the hash of the public key, like, you know, can spend the coin. Or anybody with the, you know, the, the public key for which the hash is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then there was, but then later on came SegWit and that created another two variations of how you could spend the coins. Right. Because you had the address of BC1 and you had the address that was a, looked like a P2SH address with SegWit wrapped in it. 
Right. So the wallet just became a giant mess. Because also, you have multi-sig rights and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that makes it even more complicated. But basically, the Bitcoin Core wallet became a bit unwieldy. And so one of the improvements that was introduced was to create a new way to store data and basically saying, well, here's keys, but more importantly, here's exactly how what scripts you want to watch for. So you can specifically say, I only want to check for taproot transactions for this private key and not also for legacy transactions for this private key. Now, your wallet well, handles all this practical, under the hood. What's the practical benefits of that? Just less resources? For the No, for the end user, this doesn't matter. Okay. It just means that their wallet software is better maintained. Right. Because okay. it's less of a headache for the wallet developers to deal with this. So Got it. So it basically involved a giant rewrite, mostly done by Andrew Chow. And one of the challenges there is we have this old wallet and we want to move people over to the new wallet. And so the first step for that is this new RPC call called Migrate Wallet, which does what it says it does. It will migrate your wallet? Yeah. And for the simplest cases, you know, if you created a wallet in the last couple of years and you didn't do anything super fancy, very complicated multi-six setups, whatever, this will work. If you did do something complicated, then please test it. It'll make a backup but maybe make your own backup too. Right. So and we'd like to see bug reports, basically, because maybe you have some super complicated wallet setup that does not migrate properly. Right. So basically what this does is your your wallet software will just go over all of the UTXOs and say, uh, what, well, this is a pay-to-public key? Uh, this is a multi No, it will not go over the UTXOs. throw it in the different buckets. Okay. No, it will go over the keys inside the wallet. The transaction okay. list you have is kind of the same. It'll, it'll look through what keys you have in the wallet and it will restructure those as descriptors. It will throw these in the different buckets. Yeah. Okay, I instead of one big bucket. That's right. Okay, I think that's clear enough then. But And as mentioned, this is mostly to benefit just the developers, not so much users. I mean, yeah, the users benefit indirectly, but yeah. The, the it, users... it does, I mean, descriptors have already been used to allow Taproot. So if you wanted to use Taproot, you either need to create a whole new wallet or you need to migrate to a descriptor wallet and then add Taproot to it. So there is that too, but right. Yeah. Okay, there's been, moving on to the fourth point, Miniscript support. Has Miniscript support been added to Bitcoin Core? Yes, in very limited fashion. Okay. I think we, yeah, we have done a whole episode about Miniscript, but it basically lets you do very advanced scripting systems. So something like I want to spend with two keys or I want two signatures, or after five years, I want one signature. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody has the pre-image of this SHA-256 hash, then they only need one signature plus whatever. Miniscript allows you to do fairly arbitrarily complicated things. And Bitcoin Core can now, if you have a piece of Miniscript, it can now watch that. It cannot spend from it yet. Right. I mean, the the other way to put it, the simple way to put it maybe, is Miniscript allows for smart contracting type of stuff, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's might be overselling it a bit, but, uh, but yeah. To the degree that Bitcoin can support smart contracts, the Bitcoin script language is very complicated. You don't want to write Bitcoin script by hand. You will make mistakes, mm -hmm. like even Andrew Polstra and people like that will make mistakes. So Miniscript is designed to get the most out of the existing Bitcoin script system in a safe way. That's I think that's a, the most fair way to put it. Right. Uh, sorry. And what does it mean that it's been added now? In what way has it been added? Do you? So it means you can create a wallet. So if you create a new wallet, you can put you can put a piece of Miniscript inside of that wallet. 
and it will basically let you create addresses for that mini script and you can send coins to those addresses but you can't spend them i see so oh, you can't spend them not yet so you shouldn't do that okay yeah don't do it yet then <laughs> and do and i this sounds like you might need to run a separate wallet or so, a separate piece of software that you connect to your bitcoin core node no well yeah in order to create the mini script itself you will need separate software there's a mini script right. compiler mm -hmm. but but you can write mini script by hand too if you want to so in principle you don't need a second piece of software now the idea is that a future version of bitcoin core will also be able to sign for it sure yeah but you shouldn't count on that you shouldn't use it until, yeah, yeah. <laughs> until it does Okay, well, this sounds like a pretty big step then, doesn't it? This sounds yeah. to me like it's a pretty big step. It's, because I think it is pretty big, yeah. Right. And the other constraint is that it only works for the first version of SegWit. So those are addresses with BC1Q. So it does not work for Taproot yet. And because there's a lot of work that needs to be done, or at least there is work that needs to be done in order to have Miniscript work with Taproot at all. Mm -hmm. And then once it does that in general, so this specification of Miniscript can handle it, then the next challenge is to actually get that into Bitcoin Core. And to really use Taproot and Miniscript well, you probably want music to the uh, signature aggregation stuff. Yeah. That also needs to be added to Bitcoin Core. So there is a ton of work still left to do. But this is one step. Is there currently... So we're, we're right now talking about Bitcoin Core, obviously. Is there currently other Bitcoin software that already allows you to create and use Miniscript? No, as far as I know, there is there's basically a library called Rust Miniscript and a library written by CPAR that does Miniscript in C++. Those libraries you can use, but they're not fully functional wallets. So I don't know if anybody's using Miniscript in a while. Maybe Blockstream is for their, for their what is it? Liquid sidechain. Liquid sidechain stuff. I would know. Okay. Well, interesting. Like I said, that sounds like a pretty big step, actually. Yeah, and it would also, I think, this is the longer term trend of hopefully turning Bitcoin Core from a not a very good wallet, was quite slow, quite weird, to hopefully a very good wallet. And at least a very good wallet for power users, right? So maybe exchanges want to use it more. And my hope is that if this wallet becomes very powerful, then more people will help review the code and more people will help improve it. So you kind of get this, this self-amplifying uh, effect. Right. Once it's useful enough, more people will look at it. But it takes a very long time to become useful enough because it's not useful enough, so not enough people are working on it. Got it. It's really, I think, maybe four people. So. All right, moving on to the next point. Yep. Okay, the next point on our list. This is another point about RBF. It yeah, but this is just about opt-in RBF. That the wallet will... The wallet RPC, so the command line wallet will now use it by default. Oh, that's right. Okay, wait. So we're not talking about the GUI, right? No, the GUI already switched to use RBF by default. Right. But the reason... And now the, the command line does as well? Yeah, and the so reason... So why didn't... Okay, go on. Maybe I should just let you finish. So why didn't it? Yeah, why didn't it yet? So one of the reasons is that people are using the Bitcoin Core wallet in some automated systems. So if you're running a Bitcoin ATM, you may have some really old software that does not know that RBF exists maybe because it's really old and it might get confused if it's turned on by default. So so for those kind of systems, you don't want to change things too quickly, but I think it's been five years now, so might be a good time that to switch to default. should be enough time. Well, hopefully. Okay, so would we expect more RBF transactions on the network now? 
we'll have to see. It depends on when people start using it. Yeah. My hope is no, because my hope is that anybody who, you know, builds this kind of software already decided whether they want RBF on or off, because it's just a default value. You probably should already set that default to what you want it to be so that you're not surprised by this update. So I hope to see no difference. Right. Because the worst case scenario would be that some major company that has RBF turned off for some reason now suddenly turns it on and starts producing lots of RBF transactions, confusing everybody in their ecosystem. Yeah, well, it's it, better would, if they, it wouldn't really harm them in any way, would it? I don't know. Maybe people are sending are using that service to send coins to some other service that does not like it when transactions not, are RBF. Yeah, that does not accept RBF transactions. Or gets confused by them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are out there. Okay, makes sense. So that's why you want to be a little bit slow with these command line tools to change them. Right. Okay, I think we've covered five points now, and we got we got seven in total, so we got two more to go. All right. Number six. The change output amounts are randomized. It oh, says yeah. that's what it says. It's very cool. Yeah. So basically. This has to do, I mean, I don't know the precise change, but the general problem is that when you're looking at it, when you're looking at the blockchain, you can kind of guess which address is changed and which address is not changed if you, uh, if you have an assumption about how the wallet picks coins. Mm -hmm. So if the wallet is very efficient, it will look for the smallest coin possible to spend, and then it will create as little, you know, as little change as possible. But that means that generally when you see two outputs to a transaction, the biggest one is probably the the amount that's being sent in the smallest one is probably to change. Right. Well, that's I. Is that is that necessarily true? That, that's it's not maybe, necessarily that's true. Maybe true if there's several inputs, right? That logic only holds up if there's several inputs, I think. Or if there's one input. Well, if there's only if there's let's, only let's say you well, if there's depends on how much there's available, right? But you're looking at the chain, so you don't know what was available. Mm-hmm. But if your wallet is looking at a bag of coins, it might you know start with the smallest coin, say no, it's not big enough. And then keep looking and then find one coin that's big enough and then use that to spend it. Right, it, yeah. And if you, it doesn't really matter, but it, the, if you know what software the person was using based on some other fingerprinting aspects, you can start then, you, you know how that software works, you know how that software does its coin selection, you can use that against the user. Okay, so do you know what, what algorithm Bitcoin Core was using up till now? It's using a bunch of algorithms. Oh, several. So, and do you know which ones or no? No, I should ask Merch. Okay. He 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 wrote a whole uh, thesis on it and implemented a bunch of things. But I something, mean, one of them is something the, changed. I think originally the the system was called a knapsack, and I think the knapsack basically meant you just grabbed coins randomly and then see if it was enough, and then if it wasn't, you tried again. And then there was a new thing called branch and bound, which was a bit more smarter way to find coins. And there's also the try to find a single coin that is exactly the right value strategy. Right. There's a bunch of things that are happening. It's, it's a bit complicated. Right. But what this basically does is make it more difficult to tell which one is the input, uh, sorry, which one is the change and which one is the destination. Yeah. And the way you do that is basically saying, well, rather than looking for the coin of the exact right size to spend, I'm going to look for a coin that is the amount that I need to spend plus two times the, yeah, I'm going to look for a coin that is at least three times, I guess, the amount that I'm trying to spend. Right. So you want to spend one Bitcoin, so you're going to look for a UTXO of three Bitcoin. Yeah, except you're not going to do that. You're going to say, I'm going to pick a number between the amount I want to spend 
and three times the amount I want to spend. Between one and three. Yeah. And okay. I'm going to pick that number randomly. Right. So that means sometimes the biggest, uh, sometimes you're going to pick a very high number. And so the change address will actually be the smaller, will be the bigger output. And sometimes I pick the lower random number and the change output will be the biggest amount. Okay. Of the so result. we're basically going to keep using the algorithm that we were using, or at least, I don't know, but that's Yeah, I think assumption. that doesn't change. Yeah. However, we're now going to look for coins as if we're looking for one to three times more than what we are actually spending. Exactly. And that number is random. Right. Okay. That sounds interesting. Doesn't, yeah, that, just doesn't like that mean that you sometimes end up using more UTXOs than you would actually require? In other words, wouldn't you make transactions bigger than they really need to be? Yeah, I think that might mean that sometimes you are spending more coins than, than necessary, yeah. Hmm, okay, so it's not optimizing for fees then, or it's not op optimizing I for... don't think so, but there may be some caveats in that code. You'd have to read through it to see what exactly it's doing. Maybe there's some, uh, some protection against spending too much on fees. Right. Maybe it only works if this is not the case. If I mean, you know if, what if I you're mean. using the GUI, you can also do your coin selection completely manually. Right. There is a little menu where you can sure. see what your inputs are and, and just select which ones you want to spend. Yeah. Okay. So there might be trade-offs that we're not completely clear on, but the general idea is you're going to look for more coins than you actually need for privacy purposes. That's ultimately the benefit, right? Yeah. Privacy. And, and I suppose one day we should do an episode about coin selection. This is also something I haven't specialized in. So. Yeah, we should maybe. That that does sound like an interesting topic. We can go over all of this. Cool. Exciting. Last point, Shorts. Yeah, this one isn't super interesting. It's called it's a new RPC called Send All. And so this is a command line tool. And mm -hmm. the name suggests that you're sending all your money. Mm -hmm. That's not actually true. You can use it to send all your money away to a different wallet, like say if you're trying to migrate. But you can also say, take these coins, so these specific input coins, and send them all to a specific destination. And this is stuff that you could already do <clears throat> because there was one command line tool called and send many and send to address. So there basically were already calls to do this. Yeah, but also the, in the GUI, this is already possible, right? Yeah, so the underlying motivation here is actually that there are different intentions that the user might have. They might want to send an entire coin to an exchange for privacy reasons, or they might want to send an exact amount to an exchange. And in retrospect, you don't really know what the user intended. So that creates problems when you try to bump the fee. But also the code that actually implements this is a bit of a mess because it has all these different features. So you can do all these different things for different use cases. That means your code is full of if, then, else, if, if, else, else, if. And so basically this is the first step to splitting that up to saying, okay, if you want to do this specific thing, use the send all method. If you want to do this other thing, use the send method. And that's the first step to just you know, at the command line, it's easier to tell users to, to start using two different commands for two different things. And then eventually, I guess, under the hood, there will be some changes to the GUI to also use the separation. Okay. I mean, this sounds like something that basically all wallets already do. I don't know. Yeah, I got the, the like I said, it's not a new piece of functionality. The, unsil so. the insulting thing, though, is that other wallets, the universally accepted term for this is send max. Send max. Yeah, but it's send max given a set of co coins. That's also what SendMax is, I think, or not? I don't know. Yeah, could be. <laughs> That's how I use it. That's how I think about it. No, but I get your point. Okay, yeah, this was not the most exciting future of the seven, but I'm happy we covered it, yours. Are you? Last but not least. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, there's probably uh, at least probably 500 or maybe 1,000 individual changes 
that could each be worth their own episode if you were truly interested in how compilers work and whatever. So, right. Okay. Well, we covered the highlights. At least we covered our highlights. I think so too. And I think that makes for another successful episode, Shorts. We'll see. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin Explained. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.